Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. In 1974, writer Charles Berlitz offered some eerie passages in his runaway bestseller titled The Bermuda Triangle. Some of these passages had to do with Flight 19, which disappeared the evening of December 5, 1945. He described what a reporter allegedly heard from an amateur radio operator who was listening to the doomed pilots that night. According to the reporter, the radio operator heard one of the pilots say in despair, don't come after me. They look like they're from outer space. Charles Berlitz was obsessed with the paranormal. In his book, he wrote about seemingly inexplicable disappearances of planes and ships in the Atlantic Ocean near Bermuda. Berlitz sold more than 10 million copies of the book. It spurred him to write another one, in which he included stories of people who claimed to have been affected by the triangle. He also reported in the book the existence of a giant pyramid on the bottom of the ocean and many more wild claims. While people immediately criticized Berlitz's books as nothing but science fiction, the author stood his ground. He always believed that Earth had many secrets to be discovered, and he maintained that he had friends who had vanished inside the triangle. Because of his books, he said thousands of people contacted him with their own stories. These were people who'd never discussed their experiences. They were afraid of being ridiculed. Now they had a voice. By the mid-1970s, thanks to Berlitz and a couple others, the phenomenon known as the Bermuda Triangle was dinner table conversation. It became fodder for endless numbers of feature films, books, television episodes, and documentaries. But was any of it true? Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms, coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. 
Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. From Black Barrel Media, this is Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. In this season, we're telling some of the most infamous stories about one of the most mysterious places on Earth, the Bermuda Triangle. This is Chapter 4, The Truth. Charles Burlitz said he could speak three different languages by the age of three. He'd even created a fourth one of his own. Burlitz was the grandson of the founder of a string of language schools. His family was wealthy. Young Charles had several governesses, all of whom spoke different languages. He just assumed everybody had their own lexicon, and that it was up to each individual to learn that of the others if they wanted to communicate. By the time he was in his mid-teens, Burlitz spoke eight languages fluently. Although it was his parents and grandparents who insisted upon this level of learning, Burlitz was, in fact, very bright. He graduated with honors from Yale University, and during World War II, he served as an Army intelligence officer because of his language skills. He became vice president of his family's business. He expanded the company's offerings to include tourist phrase books and pocket dictionaries, several of which he authored. He also played a key role in developing the record and tape language courses for which the company became famous. After selling the company in the late 1960s, Berlitz focused his time and his money on the subject that interested him more than anything else, the Bermuda Triangle. In 1974, his first book about the watery region catapulted him into the public eye. For the most part, it dealt with ships, small boats, and airplanes that mysteriously vanished in the area between Florida, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. The book offered possible natural and supernatural reasons for the disappearances. He told of his own experience in the Bermuda Triangle when he and a group from a radio station went boating there. The boat's engine had died suddenly. He said he and the others saw green lights pulsating beneath the water. Then he said the lights left the water, flew up into the sky, and turned orange. The boat's mechanical and electrical equipment stopped functioning. They drifted aimlessly for 15 minutes until the power came back on. Over the course of just a couple years, Berlitz's book sold more than 5 million copies and was translated into 20 languages. In response, many other authors wrote books about supernatural occurrences in the Bermuda Triangle. And there were some books put out by authors who discredited Berlitz's research. But those books didn't sell nearly as well. Berlitz was encouraged by his success and he wrote a sequel. He talked about his childhood fascination with ancient languages, particularly hieroglyphics. From there, he said it was a natural step to want to study the lost continent of Atlantis. He said Atlantis drew him to the Bermuda Triangle because he suspected the lost continent might be rediscovered under its strange waters. Berlitz insisted that he and other divers had found man-made pillars, roads, and what appeared to be tiles beneath the sea. He theorized the civilization of Atlantis had not only existed in the Bermuda Triangle, but that it had discovered advanced forces. He said that when Atlantis was destroyed, maybe those forces continued on. 
Furthermore, Berlitz wondered, what if those forces coalesced into a great power center that exists on the bottom of the sea? In the 1970s, Berlitz's two books about the Bermuda Triangle opened the floodgates for both believers and non-believers. And the non-believers had quite a bit to say. Florida author Richard Weiner quickly published three books about the Bermuda Triangle around the same time as Berlitz. He'd already filmed a documentary about the area. Because of the surging interest in the triangle, a publisher asked him to write something based on his film. He became interested in the topic in 1964 when Vincent Gaddis published his famous article in the Argosy. He was intrigued by Gaddis's claims that the triangle had a phenomenally high number of disappearances. Weiner liked to tell newspaper reporters that he'd been over the area in a boat several times and he'd never seen anything amiss. He'd also traveled 1,200 feet beneath it in a submarine and he'd never seen anything weird. He attributed the strange disappearances to human error, mechanical and structural failure, weather and atmospheric conditions. But he stopped short of saying there were no mysteries in the triangle. He just felt strongly that they could be mostly attributed to natural occurrences and not supernatural occurrences. Professor and researcher Lawrence Cush was far more emphatic. He said each and every instance of seemingly strange happenings in the triangle could be explained. According to him, there was no mystery at all. In 1975, after thoroughly examining 50 of the most well-known cases of disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle, he decided to write a book. The book and its sequels debunked all of the major so-called enigmas that occurred in the Triangle. He found that many of the incidents that supposedly happened were pure fiction. The names and stories of boats or ships were made up out of whole cloth. In other cases, he said it was simply that those who liked to promote bizarre happenings failed to research the facts or look at the context of the information. One example was the Christopher Columbus episode. Columbus was frequently referred to as the first person to provide a written account of strange lights and compass problems in the triangle. But Cush insisted the Columbus account was only strange in its retelling. Columbus was a very experienced sailor his brief note about lights falling into the sea was almost certainly a reference to a meteor shower. Columbus was not concerned enough about seeing lights at sea to ever mention them again. Another one of Cush's examples was of a ship called the Rosalie. In 1840, it was found adrift off the coast of the Bahamas. Its entire crew was missing. The ship and the cargo was intact, but the only living things on board were some half-starved cats and birds. But there was an explanation for that too, according to Cush, and it was an easy one. Cush's research found that there was never a ship named Rosalie anywhere near the Bahama Channel. However, insurance and ship manifest records show that there was a similar ship with a similar name that sailed the same route at the same time. The vessel had to be abandoned, but its crew and passengers were rescued. Because news traveled so much slower back then, it often took longer for people to connect the dots. And ship abandonment was so common at the time that the newspaper that reported the original Rosalie story didn't bother printing a clarification, which of course allowed people to believe that the original story was true. And Cush wasn't done there. 
He meticulously worked through all the major incidents you've heard about in this series. Cush gave similar explanations for dozens of other ships that seemingly disappeared without a trace in the Bermuda Triangle, one of which was the mystery ship discovered by the Ellen Austin. In 1881, the Ellen Austin was on her way from London to New York when she discovered an abandoned ship in the Bermuda Triangle. As the story goes, the captain placed some of his own crew on the mystery ship, and the two sailed side by side. During a storm, the Ellen Austin lost contact with the other ship. When the weather cleared, the Ellen Austin caught up with the other ship again, only to find there was no one on board. Their fellow crewmen were gone. Professor Cush maintained that the story of the Ellen Austin and the mysterious second ship with the vanishing crew was just that, a story. Various writers constructed inaccurate stories of the incident from an unreliable original source. Over time, the stories evolved and the details changed to the point where it's impossible to know what, if anything, actually happened. The details couldn't have been known by anyone except the men who were there, so it seems likely that the writers just made them up. And sometimes, as Cush pointed out, certain incidents may not have happened in the Bermuda Triangle at all. He focused on one of the more intriguing stories of an American experience. In March 1918, the enormous cargo ship USS Cyclops disappeared on a voyage between the island of Barbados and Baltimore, Maryland. Barbados is only a couple hundred miles from the coast of Venezuela in South America. That's 1,500 miles from the Bermuda Triangle and more than 2,000 miles from Baltimore. Cush argued that the ship could have disappeared anywhere between Barbados and Baltimore. There's no hard evidence to show that it disappeared in the area we now call the Bermuda Triangle. Still, proponents of the paranormal point to the lack of a distress call as evidence of something otherworldly. But as Cush and others point out, communications in 1918 were unreliable. It wasn't unusual for a rapidly sinking vessel to not have a chance to send a successful distress call before going under. All told, Professor Cush provided earthly explanations for dozens of ships and planes that had gone missing in the Atlantic between Miami, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. And one of the more damaging arguments against paranormal activity was that the number of ships and planes that went missing in the Triangle area was not unusually high compared to other parts of the world. In fact, its loss rate might even be smaller when its high traffic volume is taken into consideration. Writers like Cush also pointed to the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard as evidence nothing unusual happened in the so-called Bermuda Triangle. Those branches of the military contended that there were no supernatural explanations for disasters. All of them could be explained by weather or human error. Even today, the U.S. Board of Geographic Names does not recognize the Bermuda Triangle as an official name and does not maintain an official file on the area. And all of that might be satisfying and perfectly plausible, but it still leaves the most interesting mystery of all. What really happened to the five Navy Avenger bombers of Flight 19? The Navy's 500-page report about its investigation remains its official stance. The cause of the disappearance of the five bombers and a rescue plane 
and 27 men remains unknown. But military historians then and now say it was human error. Radio communication transcripts show that there were strong differences of opinion between lead flyer Charles Taylor and his students about their location. Taylor probably mistook the northern Bahamas for the Florida Keys, and he thought the water beyond the islands was the Gulf of Mexico. But the students had flown in the area before, and they appeared to know exactly where they were. They knew they were near the Bahamas in the Atlantic Ocean, not the Florida Keys near the Gulf of Mexico. That day in 1945, Taylor and one of his students took turns being the lead for the planes. They never reached land because the flight zigzagged over the ocean north of the Bahamas. During the end, Flight 19's daytime 10-mile visibility was replaced by rain squalls, turbulence, and the darkness of an early winter night. Weather reports show that there were powerful winds and the sea became rough. Finally, because of the zigzagging pattern and their inability to see land, Taylor made the decision that they should ditch into the ocean together when their fuel got down to 10 gallons. Former bomber pilots expressed the opinion that if an Avenger plane attempted to ditch at night in a heavy sea, it would almost certainly have broken up on impact. The crewmen who might have survived the crash would not have lasted long in cold water that was made worse by strong winds. The lack of debris and bodies was not unusual either. The military maintains that lots of planes and ships go down and are never found. The wide expanse of the ocean and the depths to which the planes might have sunk would make them difficult, if not impossible, to find. And many experts say the currents in the region can scatter debris hundreds of miles before anyone can even estimate where to look for the wreckage. And another prominent piece of the mystery has been the radio chatter that wasn't about the location of the planes. Author Charles Berlitz claimed that one of the radio operators that night heard Charles Taylor say, don't come after me. They look like they're from outer space. The transmission seemed to suggest that the planes were being chased by alien spacecraft. But Professor Cush had a simple retort. No pilot on Flight 19 ever uttered the quote. Taylor's actual quote was, I'm at 2,300 feet. Don't come after me. And while that might sound ominous when taken out of context, it wasn't. Taylor was talking to another pilot on the ground in Florida. The man on the ground had heard one of the flight's distress calls and offered to fly up to meet them. Taylor said it wasn't necessary. At that particular moment, Charles Taylor thought he knew where he was again and refused the help. At no time did Taylor or any of the other flyers on Flight 19 signal that they were being chased by otherworldly beings. Author Charles Berlitz either never researched the interaction or he chose to ignore the real quote. So over time, and thanks to some of these writings, some people embraced the full paranormal theory and some embraced the human error theory. And by the 1980s, a third theory developed. Over the decades, a sort of middle ground theory about the Bermuda Triangle has formed. It's centered on this question. What if the Triangle does claim more ships and planes than other places, but it's because of natural oddities like gas bubbles or super waves? No one really knows where it started, 
But by the early 1980s, a theory about underwater methane in the triangle started to gain popularity. Around this time, a geochemist published a possible connection between sunken ships and natural gas. He said that natural methane gas forming out of decomposed organic debris can get trapped inside methane hydrates. In turn, these hydrates can get trapped in the sediments deep below the ocean floor in a highly concentrated form. If the gas is released in enormous quantities, like in an underwater earthquake, it can create a huge surge within the ocean. The surge would then rush to the surface of the water. A ship passing over the area can quickly sink because methane can substantially reduce the density of water. As a result, it would lower the required buoyancy that keeps the ship afloat. So basically, these pockets of ocean water act like trap doors. A ship could be cruising along, then hit one of the pockets of water with methane gas, and the ship would sink, like dropping through a trap door. It could happen so suddenly and unexpectedly that there might not be time for a distress call. And to the outside world, it would look like the ship just vanished. The ship would sink to the bottom of the ocean and eventually get covered by the sediments that drifted back down after the eruption of methane gas. With the ship covered in sediments, it would truly look like it disappeared without a trace. And some publications suggested that this phenomenon could affect planes as well. The concentrated methane could choke the engine by cutting off oxygen, which would cause the plane to crash into the ocean without warning. That's the theory anyway. But as one respected physicist said, that's just not how methane gas works. Any stored natural gas trapped under the seabed would simply disperse in the water before it could cause any surge. In other words, methane gas bubbles could not cause ships or planes to disappear. So if methane gas isn't causing giant pockets of thin water to essentially swallow ships, then maybe a more violent force of nature is to blame. Recent documentaries feature the theories of a British scientist who believes that superwaves, sometimes called rogue waves, have been responsible for a number of ships that have disappeared in the Triangle. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, rogue waves are steep and tall, and they often hit unexpectedly. They're common in the waters off South Africa. Waves from storms in the South Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, and the Southern Ocean all come together at once. According to one oceanographer, there have been disappearances of big container vessels and tankers off South Africa for years. The same thing happens in the Bermuda Triangle, where storms can come from all directions. If each wave can reach over 30 feet tall, Occasionally, they can collide at the right moment and create a rogue or freak wave that can be over 100 feet high. That's a wall of water 10 stories high crashing onto a ship. That would sink almost anything. But of course, by the very nature of rogue waves, it's almost impossible to prove that they were responsible for lost ships. Sometimes the answer to a Bermuda Triangle mystery has been hiding in plain sight. The wreckage of a coal ship that disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle nearly 100 years ago while on its way to Cuba was an example. The American merchant steamer SS Cotopaxi has long been the subject of conspiracy theories and hoaxes after seemingly vanishing without a trace during a routine voyage in 1925. 
The code epoxy left Charleston, South Carolina on November 29th and headed for Havana, Cuba. It vanished, and so did the 32 people on board. The disappearance baffled investigators, but now it seems like the case wasn't mysterious after all. Searchers never found any wreckage. They never found lifeboats or bodies or anything. The mystery grew over the decades, to the point where it was included in Steven Spielberg's movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In the film, the ship was found lying on its side in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, supposedly deposited by aliens. In real life, reports as recently as 2015 claimed the code epoxy had reappeared near a restricted military zone off the coast of Cuba, but the reports have been dismissed as a hoax. Around 2005, a marine biologist and shipwreck explorer started looking for the lost ship. Among other things, he searched the archives of the ship's insurance company, Lloyd's of London. In the insurance archives, he found documents proving that the code epoxy sent out a distress signal on December 1st, 1925, something that historians had missed. The signal was picked up in Jacksonville, Florida, which meant the ship must have sent it near the coast of St. Augustine. St. Augustine, Florida was a thriving port in colonial times, and the waters near it are littered with shipwrecks. Most of them are from the 16th and 17th centuries, but the explorer wondered, could one of the wrecks be a newer ship like the Code Epoxy? In fact, many local divers and fishermen already knew of a ship that seemed newer. It was located a little further off the coast than many of the colonial wrecks. They nicknamed it Bear Wreck, but no one knew its original name or story. The explorer dug into paper records even further. After the code epoxy went missing, the crew members' families sued the company that owned the ship. The families had found the ship's carpenter, who testified that the ship had broken hatch covers. If water sloshed aboard the ship and ran down to the cargo hold, the broken covers meant the ship could flood and sink. The explorer and his colleagues also found the coordinates of the ship's probable route, as well as written descriptions of the machinery on board. Those two things lined up neatly with the location and the array of artifacts found at Bear Wreck. Armed with all this information, the searchers guessed at the story of the code epoxy. They thought the ship was operating under extreme financial pressure and probably left Charleston without the right equipment to handle a major storm. Then about 200 miles into its journey, near St. Augustine, just south of Jacksonville, Florida, the ship slammed into a monstrous, fast-moving storm. Waves flooded the ship, which had faulty hatch covers, and it sank quickly in shallow water. Now, 95 years later, divers are confident they found the missing ship. In September 2020, just two months before this episode aired, it appears likely that the code epoxy lies on the floor of the sea 35 miles off the coast of St. Augustine, more than 300 miles from the Bermuda Triangle. The archives of insurers like Lloyd's of London remain a treasure trove for those searching for the fates and histories of ships all over the world, including vessels lost in the broadly defined area of the Bermuda Triangle. 
It's those kinds of archives that might provide the strongest evidence against the theory that there's paranormal activity in the world's vast shipping and flying lanes. For centuries, Lloyd's of London was the biggest marine insurance company. On many occasions, it reported that accidents in the Bermuda Triangle were no more dangerous or prevalent than in the rest of the world. And Lloyd's didn't require extra insurance on ships passing through the Triangle because it didn't perceive any extra risk from those waters. But even with detailed archives and endless reporting, the exact number of planes and ships that have disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle may never be known. Some stories of disappearances were simply made up. Others claimed that disappearances were mysterious, but then conveniently neglected to mention rough storms in the area. Others were cases of mistaken identity, or cases where ships or planes were lost when they weren't actually in the Bermuda Triangle. Still others were cases where various newspapers reported ships missing, but did not report that they'd eventually turned up. So readers at the time just went on thinking the ships had vanished, and they passed those stories down through the generations. Experts also point out that the area loosely defined as the Bermuda Triangle is heavily traveled with crews and cargo ships. So the basic law of averages says that more ships will sink there than in less traveled areas such as the South Pacific. Despite the fact that many of the mysteries around the Bermuda Triangle have been debunked, there are still enough loose ends to fuel the imagination. We'll never know exactly what happened to the pilots of Flight 19, and we'll probably never find their planes. And sometimes the belief in an otherworldly mystery is preferable to the belief in simple human error. It's certainly more entertaining. And so books will always be written, and TV shows will always be produced about the strange happenings in the Bermuda Triangle. Next time on Infamous America, we're going to do a big crossover event with our other podcast, Legends of the Old West. On Legends, we'll tell the story of Texas Ranger Frank Hamer. And here on Infamous, we'll tell the much-requested story of the two notorious outlaws he brought down, Bonnie and Clyde. All that begins in January. If you want the full story, be sure to subscribe to both shows. And to get early access to binge both stories before they're available for everyone else, sign up for our Black Barrel Plus membership program. You'll find the link in the show notes of this episode or on our website, blackbarrelmedia.com. Plans begin at just $5 per month. This season was researched and written by Julia Brickling. Original music by Rob Valier. Audio editing and sound design by Dave Harrison. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. Find us at our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, or on our social media channels. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And you can stream all our episodes on YouTube. Just search for Infamous America Podcast. Thanks for listening.